Morning. Well, as Rick said, my name is Scott. I'm the small groups pastor at Grace Church, and I'm also on the teaching team over there, and it's, it's great to be back here again this morning. Um, you guys all have a good New Year? Yeah, yeah, I need, I need to live vicariously through you for a moment. Um, what happened was my wife, Ryan, our two little boys, uh, Evan and Isaiah, they're five and three, and myself, we got to spend New Year's Eve morning at the doctor's office. We, uh, we all came down with a fever, pretty high fever. My son was up about 104. Um, we were running 103, a lot of coughing, a lot of all the fun stuff that comes along with that. Uh, turns out that we all had strep. So uh, we got to spend our uh, New Year's Eve by going to bed at 6.30 in the, night, in the evening. So it was... It was a lot of fun. Uh, but you know what? The doctor gave us the antibiotics, and I'm glad we live in a medical age that we do because we went to bed, and we woke up after taking the antibiotics the next morning, and things were really, really starting to improve, and the symptoms were, were going away. Uh, but you know what? That's not always the case. Back when I was a junior in high school, uh, my family and I, we were praying for a miracle because I came down with an illness that no one seemed to know what it was. It was, um, it started out, my junior year, started out with fatigue. I would just get really tired, really easy, just constant fatigue. And then um, I developed a kidney infection. My lower back, just constant pain. Didn't matter if I was standing or sitting or lying down, didn't matter. Constant pain all the time. Uh, Then the sweating started, which was, in my opinion, the worst part of this whole ordeal. Um... This sweating would go on and on and on. I would change my clothes seven, eight, sometimes 12 times a day. I'd have to change my clothes because I was sweating just like I did a, a beach body workout. Um, I remember sitting in the doctor's office and the doctor's looking at me and, and literally sweat is coming off of me. It kind, of, kind of sounds disgusting, but that's what was happening. And he looked at me and he said, I've never seen anything like this because I don't know what this is. And... Uh, so sweating constantly, changing sheets in the middle of the night, uh, you know, multiple times just because they get soaked. So that was really pretty miserable. Well, because of the sweating, um, I developed a rash, and this rash developed under my skin, so creams wouldn't work, and I'd always have this itchy rash under my skin. Um, athlete's foot, I got athlete's foot on my feet and on my hands. That was disgusting. Um, tingling on my feet, a burning sensation, and I had a, a constant uh, low-grade fever, 99 to 100 uh, was my fever. One time uh, during this process, I had a seizure. We went down to Florida for vacation, and uh, I woke up in the ambulance when I was down in Florida. We were heading off to the hospital because apparently I had a seizure. So I got to spend the rest of that vacation in the, uh, the hospital down in Florida, but it was not all bad because they gave me access to the staff refrigerator. And uh, I got to eat a lot of pudding and, and soda and other things I wouldn't normally get to eat. But it was a frustrating process. This went on for 10 months. It was, um, as you can imagine, it was desperate, depressing. Depression set in. Um, it was very, it's one of these things that just grinds you down. Do you know what that, you know what that just, it just sort of slowly ground us down. And we went to, you know, a spectrum of doctors and world-renowned specialists and medications and biopsies and poking and prodding and everything. Nobody knew what it was. 
And finally, uh, one Sunday morning, a man in our church approached my, my parents and he said, I know what the problem is. He was a psychologist and he said, I know what the problem is. A colleague of mine, I mentioned it to her, and she said, get him in my office. Normally it took two months to get an appointment with this, with this doctor. And she said, I want to see him in there this week. So, uh, so I went in there and she said, here's what's going on. It's a chemical imbalance in your brain. She said, we need to reboot that. And so uh, she said, we're going to get you on some medications. It's going to clear things up. And you know what? She got me on this medication, and within a couple of days, all the symptoms were gone. It just rebooted everything. All the symptoms were gone. Praise God. We were praying for a miracle, and God delivered. This morning, we're going to look at a man named Naaman. He also needed a miracle. Naaman was suffering from an incurable disease, and he was told how to get rid of this disease. And we're going to see that Naaman, he almost missed out on the healing and the blessing that God had for him because of his attitude. So let's make that our big idea for this morning. <coughs> Humility invites God's blessings. As we go through this passage, we're going to look at two attitudes that, that we as followers of Christ can have in our Christian walk. And we're going to see how these attitudes can affect the blessings that God has for us in our life. We're going to look at the attitude of pride and the attitude of humility. So let's jump in. This passage starts in 2 Kings 5.1. And here's what it says. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. Aram is what we now know as Syria, borders Israel, so they're neighbors with Syria. Goes on to say, he said, he was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Naaman was a big deal in his country. He was, he was wealthy. He was skilled. He was respected. He was commander of the army of the king. He was likely the second most powerful man in his country. And it goes on to say, he said he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Somehow, despite his wealth and his prominence, Naaman contracted leprosy. This was a, a terrible disease. What it would do is it would deaden the nerves in the body, and the body would start to rot and start to deteriorate, starting with the face. Start, parts would start to fall off. I mean, if you got a cut and you had leprosy, you couldn't feel that you got a cut. So it would just fester and grow. Uh, fingers and toes, things would start to fall off. Leprosy was a, was a death sentence carried out slowly over time. Naaman had it, and there was no cure. Verse 2 tells us, it says, Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, what's going on here is occasionally raiders from Aram, they would go down into Israel and they would loot the towns. They would take uh, food, goods. They'd take, in this case, they took people and they'd bring them back to their land. And apparently during one of these raids, they took this little girl. Now, this little girl likely saw her parents killed in front of her. And so she is taken back to live and serve in the house of the man who essentially kidnapped her. But look at the grace that she has. She says, I know the cure. I mean, she could have said something like, you know what, guys? Uh, I know the cure, and I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to watch him suffer. She didn't do that. She said, I know the cure. Here's what you need to do. 
In reality, this little girl is the hero of the story. She's the one who sets the whole thing in motion. Verse 4 says, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl of Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. That's a lot of money that he's taken with him there with the intention of buying his healing. He's got hundreds of pounds of gold, hundreds of pounds of silver, and clothing. Now, clothing may sound weird, but keep in mind, they didn't have a Kohl's down the road with a 90% off rack back then. Uh, things were really, you know, fabric was very rare. Clothes all had to be handmade. So clothes were a big deal back then. So here Naaman goes. He gets his whole caravan with him. They head off with this big vault full of gold, a big vault full of silver, and a clothes rack kind of shaking along in the wind as they're moving down the road. So it goes on to say, the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? What does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now picture this. Naaman, he's got this big caravan with him, right? And he's, he's in Israel, and he's heading, and all of a sudden, in the distance, you see this dust cloud, right? You're, maybe you're in Israel, you're working out in your yard, you're, you're, you're hanging your laundry up that you just washed, and you see this dust cloud rolling into town, and it's an army. What, what do you think your first thought is, right? They're going to be looters, right? That's what they're used to. That's not what happens. See, they go to Naaman's house, and they've got all this gold and the silver in their clothes rack with the clothes on it. And they go, I mean, they go to Elisha's house, and they go to his door. And here's what it says. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you'll be cleansed. Elisha didn't even go to the door himself. Right? The house isn't that big. It's probably just a few steps. But he didn't even go to the door himself. Instead, he sends his messenger to him. And the messenger tells him, hey, go wash in the Jordan. Your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. That's it? You know, Naaman, Naaman traveled all this way with all this treasure and all these clothes. Elisha wouldn't even come to the door. Verse 11 tells us Naaman's reaction. I'm sure you can figure out what it is. Naaman went away angry. And he said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Obana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off in a rage. And the fact is, the rivers of Damascus, they were cleaner than the Jordan. He was right in that. Naaman's, his response, it kind of seems justifiable, right? I mean, with his social standing and all the planning that went into this trip, the way that Elisha treated him seems rude. Wouldn't even come to the door. But not only that, what Elisha was telling him to do is something that anybody could do. 
The average citizen, anyone could go down and wash in the Jordan, even people who have nothing. So Naaman's thinking, you mean to tell me there's no difference between them and me? See, Naaman had money. He had high social standing. Naaman was a leader with servants. He commanded an army. He had direct access to kings. But at the end of the day, none of that would have healed him. But he was willing to ride off back into the sunset, back into his country with his money and his clothes and his leprosy because of his pride. Naaman almost missed out on the miracle and the blessing that God had for him because of his prideful attitude. So let's look at this attitude of pride. And it's a growing problem in our culture all around us. Our culture feeds pride. You know, from how many likes do you have or how many followers do you have on social media to advertisements that reinforce this idea that, that, you know what, you deserve it. Or the social stigma that no one is allowed to offend us. Can't be offended in this culture. Our culture has this ever-growing problem and it's fostering and it's celebrating this pride. As followers of Christ, it's a constant struggle for us to continually fight against that. Now, when we're talking about pride, we're not talking about taking pride in your country or taking pride in your work or being proud of your kids. The pride we're talking about is this ugly thing inside the heart. It's it's the pride that comes from the self-righteousness and from conceit. It's pride that puts us up on a pedestal and says, you know what, I'm great, and here's why. But pride's a deceitful thing because many times it's actually based in fact. I mean, People have worked for things. People have sacrificed for things. Prideful people, they can have intelligence, great education. They can be highly respected in the business world. They can have a way above average physical abilities. Right? They can have large bank accounts because of wise investing. But prideful people, they could also be people who have very little. They may be people with a track record of really bad decision making. Maybe they don't have marketable skills. They have little finances, but they've falsely built themselves up in their own minds. and They think the world revolves around them. Even people with very little can be prideful. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, he talks about pride, and the Greek word he uses is physio. And by using this word, Paul is telling us something about the human ego. This word, it means to be overinflated, puffed up, bloated beyond its normal size, like, like a balloon, you know, ready to burst. But it's more than that. It's more than just being puffed up. The word means more than puffed up. It means puffed up, bloated, filled up with absolutely nothing. And here's the thing about pride. It delivers empty promises. Pride says, because of who I am, I have enough to be self-sufficient and independent through life. And my status, it elevates me above other people. But in reality, you know, prideful people, and I'm sure you know several of them, prideful people, they're often miserable, right? They're always trying to compete with others. They're rarely satisfied. Their relationships are a mess because people just don't want to be around them. But in spite of all that, they keep on deceiving themselves and puffing themselves up. C.S. Lewis, he said this about pride. He said, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness are all mere flea bites in comparison to pride because pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. You know, pride has been called the root of all sin. Uh, sin. It's the thing that caused Satan to rebel against God because he wanted to be worshipped as God. 
God hates sin because it is a hindrance to seeking him. All throughout the Bible, God tells us his view of pride. Proverbs 8.13. All who fear the Lord will hate evil. Therefore, I hate pride, arrogance, corruption, and perverse speech. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. In Psalm 10.4, David writes this. He said, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Pride crowds God out. Now, I I don't know you. I don't know if you have a struggle with pride. But if you do, I want to encourage you, kill it. Kill the pride that's in your heart. Kill it by continually reminding yourself that every great thing that you have, every impressive thing that you accomplished, it's been because of God's permission and God's favor. In reality, the things that people take pride in, they're incredibly unsecure. The thing that someone elevates himself or herself above others with, it could be taken away in an instant. Now, the person who takes pride in their intelligence, right? I mean, think about this. One wrong slip on the ice outside, one hit on the head could give you brain damage. It's gone. The person who elevates himself uh, because of their physical prowess, one wrong hit on the field and they could be on disability for the rest of their life. Person who takes pride in their finances. Financial ruin can happen in a day. I had a friend who was a multi, multi-millionaire and one day he lost everything. Was gone. It happens. I've seen it. It happens. God does not favor the prideful person. Nothing good comes from pride. So if there's pride in your heart, kill it. Instead, instead of having pride, put on humility because humility invites God's blessing. Let's go on with our story. Remember, Naaman, last last time we saw him, he turned and he went away in a rage. He was angry. But luckily, he had someone in his life to give him a reality check. And we all need that sometimes, right? We all need people like that. Verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? Hey, Naaman, if, if that guy came out the door and he said, in order for you to be healed, you have to kill the seven-headed dragon, would you have done it? Well, yeah. Yeah, I would have done that. If, if I had to do something to prove my courage and earn my healing, I would have done that. Then watch what he says. Watch what his servant says. And this is where Naaman's attitude flips around. His servant says, how much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? Look, Naaman, if you're willing to do the difficult thing, then why not just do the simple thing and obey? Verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Check this out. Naaman went down to the, down to the Jordan River, probably with all of his soldiers watching. He went down there and he took off his medals which represented his accomplishments in life. He took off his uniform, which represented his prestige and his status. And he got in the river trusting God. Can you picture this? He he gets in the river and he ducks down one time. He comes up, still there. Two times, three times, five times, 
comes up six times and is still there. He goes down the seventh time and he comes up and he's clean. It's gone. Can you imagine his reaction when he came up? I'm, I'm sure it wasn't like, behold, I am cleaneth. You know, he probably went nuts, right? He's probably jumping around. His death sentence was gone. When Naaman laid aside his pride and he, he put on a humble attitude, God worked through that. You see, Naaman learned that it wasn't about the cleanliness of the water, but it was about the greatness of God. Naaman humbled himself and he trusted God. And that humble attitude, it directly impacted the blessing that God had for him. So much so that a thousand years later, Jesus used Naaman as an illustration of faith when he was talking to Israel about their problem of unbelief. Luke 4.27, Jesus tells the crowd, he said, There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elijah the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman, he stood out as an example of faith. He, he humbled himself. He did the thing that God asked him to do, even though it didn't make any sense. That did not make any sense to dunk yourself seven times in a dirty river to get clean of leprosy. But he did it, and he saw God's blessing because of it. Listen to what the Bible says about humility. It says in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James 4, 10, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. When someone is humble, it doesn't mean that they're not influential or strong or wealthy or powerful or popular. It's that they recognize that those things were given to them in order to expand the kingdom of God. When I think of humble people, uh, several people come to mind. Let me tell you about one of them. Um, this man was an ordained Presbyterian minister, just seminary graduate. He's a man that argued before the U.S. Senate to fund children's educational television. He's a man who won four Emmy Awards and a Lifetime Achievement Award. And at his speech at the Lifetime Achievement Award, he didn't even talk about himself. He talked about other people. He had the A-list celebrities in that room teary-eyed because of their respect for him and because of his humility. This man's goal was to teach kids to be good neighbors and to think of others first. You know him as Mr. Rogers. I'm willing to bet this humble man influenced you in some way in your life. You know, in my 20s, I really resisted the idea of being a Mr. Rogers Christian. But as I live life more and more and I look at our culture more and more, I said, you know what? This world needs more of the tender strength and humility of a Mr. Rogers type Christian. We need more of that. God's going to work powerfully through the lives of those who put off their pride and instead they humble themselves and obey him. Let's finish up with the story and see what, uh, what God does in Naaman's life. Verse 15, then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please, accept a gift from your servant. Now, this gift would have made Elijah, you know, would likely have made him the, the wealthiest man in Israel if he accepted that gift. See, Naaman was no longer using the money as a payment for his healing. He was using it out of, as a gift out of joy and out of gratefulness. Verse 16 says, it says, The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. 
And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon and bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace. Naaman came for the healing of his skin, and God healed his soul. You know, the nature of the cure was to drive Naaman to humility. Naaman's real problem was that his self-sufficiency and his self-righteousness, they were blocking his relationship with God. But the humbling nature of this cure, it blew that away. And, and it made a shift so that he believed in God as the only God. He says that. He says, now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Naaman knew who the real God was, but he also knew that he was going back to a culture where he was going to be forced to bow down to a false God. Uh, what would happen was the king would come in and he would lean on his arm. Well, when the king leans down, Naaman couldn't stay standing. He had to also kneel down with him. And so he's saying, don't judge me because of that. What, what the thought back then was uh, the dirt. They, they believed that a god was bound to the dirt in the nation where he worshipped. So, so Naaman, he takes this, these jars of dirt with the intention of taking them home, putting them on his own ground, whether that's in the temple or whether that's in his home, wherever that was, we don't know. The intention was he's going to put this dirt down and he's going to worship God, the one God, the only God, on that spot on that dirt. And, and that's why he wanted that dirt for, to make offerings and sacrifices to the God. This request, it shows how Naaman had changed, right? Before he was disparaging the rivers in Israel, and now he's saying, I want to take your dirt home with me, right? Think of how different that little girl, that little Israelite girl's life was after that. The little girl that he took captive. Think of how different her life was. He comes home believing in the one God, and she knows about this God. Maybe, you know, speculating here, maybe she taught him some stuff. Maybe they would have long conversations about who God is, and she taught him more and more about that. But think about how her life changed because of the grace that she showed her master. When we approach God, he wants us to approach him like Naaman. He wants us to lay down our pride and become humble. He wants us to take off our accomplishments and our prestige, set aside our bank account. He, none of that stuff impresses God. He doesn't want that stuff. He wants us. That's all. He just wants us. We can't purchase God's favor. We can't earn God's favor, but we can receive his favor when we have the right attitude. There's a song from a number of years ago written by Michael English. I think it was written in 1980. I don't know. Somewhere back in the 1980s or you know the song Michael English? No? Okay. It's called In Christ Alone, but it's not In Christ Alone that is more popular. It's, um, sort of, it, anyway, it's In Christ Alone. Here's what the lyrics say. I think they speak very well to this humility situation. It said, In Christ alone will I glory, though I could pride myself in battles won, for I have been blessed beyond measure, and by his strength alone I overcome. 
Oh, I could stop and count successes like diamonds in my hand, but those trophies could not equal to the grace by which I stand. In Christ alone I place my trust and find my glory in the power of the cross. In every victory let it be said of me, my source of strength, my source of hope is Christ alone. Naaman saw God's blessing in his life because he chose humility instead of holding on to his pride and his accomplishments. So in our daily walk, as we go out there into the world, as we go out into a culture that is saying, be prideful. As we go out into that culture, we all have a choice to make. To have it said of us that everything we have is because of Christ alone. Or we could choose to have a prideful attitude and saying it's about me. And we're going to miss the blessing that God has for us in our lives. Humility invites God's blessing. And as we choose to be humble, God's plans and his blessings in our life are going to unfold. Pray with me. Father, we, uh, we praise you. As we stand at the beginning of 2019, Lord, as we stand at the beginning of a new year, you know the blessings that you have for us. Father, you know what you want to unfold in our life. Give us, Lord, as we go out into a culture that, that says humility is not celebrated. Give us within our hearts, Father, the, uh, the ability to say, you know what? I recognize everything comes from you, God, regardless of what it is. And that's what I'm going to celebrate. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.